Welcome to My Fertility Journey, Life Chats with Bianca Bullissian. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2. Okay, so before we go into today's amazing episode, let's just talk a bit about the podcast in general. If this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. However you found us, I am grateful you are here. I would recommend listening to episode zero of season one, if you haven't already, as well as the trailer of season two, so you can have a good idea of what the podcast is all about. If you are a regular listener at this point, thank you so much for coming back. This is not a podcast of compilations of only infertility stories. I talk to experts of various fields. I talk to friends that have been with me along my journey and a shitload of super special warriors that are out there just battling conditions like infertility as well as endometriosis, adenomyosis, cancer, and every single chat gives me goosebumps and brings me to tears, sometimes happy tears, sometimes sad, but all incredibly inspiring. So, on to today's episode. I talked to Anusha Gandhi. Anusha is a client relationship manager at Invitai, which is a clinical genetics company. She is an endo warrior. She got her endometriosis diagnosis in 2012. And then in 2018, she started her blog after she had her second surgery. So she's been through a lot. She has so much knowledge about her condition and endometriosis in general. We talked about her story, of course, but also the creation of her blog and her Instagram account where she connects with so many folks out there that are suffering through this condition. And she's incredibly articulate in her speech. So it's very, very easy to talk to her and to listen to her. So I really do hope that you enjoy and learn just as I did by sitting with her. Anusha also has a beautiful project of opening a pain clinic in Ottawa, Ontario, which is called Femade. So please check the notes on the episode and follow all the Instagram accounts so you can keep an eye on the progress of these projects. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Hello, Anusha. Welcome to the show. I am so happy that you're here and we finally have some time to sit together and chat and I get to know a bit more about your story and share all your um, inspirations with the listeners. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. So we're going to start as I usually do with these life chats that I call them. It's just going back a little bit, um, especially as 
um, women or folks with female reproductive organs, um, sort of describing how fertility was introduced in your life as a, a young person. Yeah, that's such an interesting one. So, I mean, I've been talking about infertility for so long, thinking about how fertility was introduced. I think it was just such a natural progression. I mean, I'm, I'm part of a very close family. I'm part of a, a culture that um, really sort of instills the life goal of getting married, having kids, and focusing on your kids. And so there was no moment where it was introduced. It was ever since I was a little girl, um, family members would always talk about when you're old enough to have kids, when you're old enough to get married. Um, so I never, I never knew the difference between fertility and infertility, if, if I'm to be honest about that. Yes, yes. I think that's a lot of our cases um, as girls growing up. And that's all we hear that, you know, it's when it's time and you get married and have your kids, like, like things are very simple like that. Right. right? So, so what happened as you were getting at that age where society and your close family and friends were expecting Mm -hmm. that you would go down that route? And then how did, where did you take a turn? Let's say. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think society is a great one to put in there. So basically I was with someone for a number of years and we got married, we bought a house and then just like that, it was like, okay, the next thing that we're supposed to do is try to have kids. Um, And I know, so I'm not with him anymore, but Mm -hmm. I know that for me, the idea of having a kids and starting a family and being this nuclear entity was something I wanted through and through. Hadn't even thought about the possibilities of not being able to have that. Um, And I know we'll talk about endometriosis further down, but I just knew it as painful periods. So after I, I had tried to conceive with him and month after month, it wasn't working. The only person I knew who to go to about this was like my family doctor. You know, I I didn't think to even go to my family about this because I had not heard of any stories of people not being able to conceive at that point. Um, So, you know, for me, it was like, okay, here's this weird medical incident that's happening to me. Uh, I need to talk to my, my family doctor about this. And, um, you know, in my head, I was like, maybe the birth control hasn't worn out yet, or maybe there's something that I'm doing wrong. And um, when I had talked to the family doctor, he was very encouraging, maybe naively encouraging, I think, Mm -hmm. because he still (laughs) hadn't, he still hadn't educated me on the possibility that I could have difficulty because of the endometriosis He never once said infertility. Um, And as time went on, I was approaching, you know, a year and a half of these consistent failures to, to conceive. He finally told me that if I can make it to two years 
of failed pregnancies, he would then refer me to a fertility clinic. Okay. Wow. Two years. That's yeah, a lot. Two yeah. years. How two many years. years ago was that? If you don't mind sharing. Um, yeah, great question. So that was in 2010. Okay. So about 11 years ago. Yeah. 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 Um, and so by the time I was able to get in with the fertility clinic here in Ottawa, they had done their battery of tests and there were a number of things that were red flags. You know, I had low egg count. Um, I had one fallopian tube that was blocked. They were able to unblock. Um, but none of it seemed to equate to infertility. Um, and so then that was the, that was the second time in my life. There was a 15 year gap between the first and second time I'd ever heard the word endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Um, where the fertility doctor had said to me, my sense is that's what's at play here. And the only way to diagnose you would be to do a surgery where they would, um, they would take biopsies and they would remove whatever they could see. And then we kind of go from there. So depending on what they could and couldn't do, there may be hope to conceive or, you know, they'd give me some sort of indication that, it wasn't in the cards for me. Um, so he performed a really outdated surgery, which is an ablation surgery. Um, so basically there's two types of endometriosis surgeries. One is an ablation um, where you can think of it as it's cauterizing, but think of it as like shaving the hairs off, right? So you're not okay. getting to the root. And then the excision, which is the gold standard, is really taking that disease from the root and removing any level of cellular remainder that's there. So this was back in 2012 now that I had the ablation surgery. And he did indicate that I had what was known as stage three. So okay. where it was found and how aggressive it was. Um, he had removed endo from my bladder and my colon and my ovaries. And with the ablation, because it is known to start growing again, since mm -hmm. the root is still there, he gave me three months to conceive. Okay. And then he knew that I'd be in the danger zone again, just because the disease would come back. Okay. So that's sort of the timeline that they expect the tissue to start growing again? With the ablation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. the description of the shaving. <laughs> yeah. Like shaving versus waxing, if yeah, you will. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I hadn't heard that before. And that makes it very clear on how it's not going to be as effective. Right. Yeah. So, so short term and yeah. such an invasive thing um, even, right. So if it wasn't so invasive, you'd be like, oh, okay, let's just start with that. But it's very invasive still, and it and it has no long term benefits really. Three yeah, months absolutely. is nothing. It's nothing, and and in hindsight, the ablation surgery shouldn't have been done. Um, I think there were a number of factors at play. You know, fertility doctors really shouldn't be doing these types of surgeries. Mm. Um, ablation really shouldn't be done. Anyone who's suspected of having endometriosis should be seen by a specialist, an endometriosis specialist. 
So, you know, at the time I was really excited because it gave me three months, but now knowing what I know, it shouldn't have been done that way. Yeah. Right? Things could have been done differently. That's interesting too. I've never heard of the fertility doctor doing the surgery. Did yeah. he do it at the clinic or was it at a hospital? He was at a hospital. Okay. But it was himself. He doesn't, he didn't refer you to mm-hmm. an endo specialist. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know that endo specialists existed. Existed. Yeah. So then if we, let's take a quick pause and right. we'll try and remember where we, where we stopped here. So after your surgery, but I wanted to go back a bit because you said something, well, you said a few different things that so many things we could unpack, but um, the first I find so interesting is the mindset of, like you said, you know, you, you were with your first partner and after you got married and you got a house, you're like, oh, what do we do now? Oh, we're supposed to have kids. Like that is so ingrained in us. And like, I have goosebumps because I hope that the next generation, you know, the kids, grandchildren of our generation don't grow up with that thought. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you grow up as a, as a girl or boy or uh, whatever gender identity, like you don't, you don't, you should never feel like you're supposed to do something. Right. Yeah. So that is one thing that, um, that is sad in a way, right. That we feel that way, um, mm-hmm. still at this day and age. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I thought was interesting that I wanted to unpack is that you said you heard the word endometriosis twice yeah. in your life. So the second time was when this fertility doctor that, that helped you in a way introducing you to the diagnosis, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. What was the first one? And and what was also, because you mentioned the painful periods, but you also ma- mentioned birth control mm-hmm. that can sort of suppress that a little bit and you sort of don't really know what your periods are like because I know that was the case for me. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't mind sharing, how was that earlier sort of knowledge and how were your cycles like? Yeah. So I had my first period at 14 and right away, I mean, there was really no lead up to this right away. I had painful periods. I had heavy bleeding and my cycles weren't cycles. Like I would be four days on a few days off, 11 days on. Mm. So I was losing so much blood. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was gruesome. And, you know, I don't think my mother even knew what to do with this. You know, she had normal menstrual cycles, Mm -hmm. nothing painful, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, So I was navigating, navigating this in part on my own. I mean, she was very supportive, but we had no clue. Mm -hmm. And um, so one day I was at school and I was losing so much blood that I ended up fainting. Oh, my God. And so uh, that was the beginning of me going to emerge to get some sort of reprieve from these painful periods. And it was just by happenstance that I was waiting in the room, waiting for the doctor to come. And this one nurse I don't know how she suspected I had endometriosis or how she could even relate to what I was going through, but she had made an offhand comment that, oh, you know, when you conceive and when you actually have labor, it'll be a breeze compared to what you're going through now. And 
as when the doctor came in and they started talking, I overheard them say the word endometriosis. And being such a clinical word, yeah. I, I kind of had it ingrained in my head, endometriosis. But, you know, there was no Google back then. There was no... <laughs> That's right. Dive into it. Yeah. So If it was today, you'd be on your smartphone right oh, away. Yeah. The kids today, the, yeah. there's no gap between hearing something that you've never heard about and knowing what it is. It's exactly. like, it all happens. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just a word that kind of floated in my life, disappeared, and then came back 15 years later. Wow. Um, but to your, to your uh, other question, so what they had done at the age of 14 or 15, I can't remember now exactly, their solution was to put me on birth control. And I would say for the most part, you know, the education that we hear now about birth control and the effects that it has on an individual are absolutely correct. I, I will conclude though, that when you are having these abnormal cycles and heavy bleeding, and obviously a lot of hormone fluctuations that are resulting in a lot of shedding of the endometrium, the first line of defense is always birth control and be it good or bad. I, I don't know. Right. I just think that it does help a lot of young girls yeah. get through those initial years, you know, by mitigating the pain and the bleeding and everything else that goes with it. So yeah, I mean, the birth control was very poorly made back then and they had a lot of side effects and weight gain and whatnot, but I am thankful that I, that I had it, you know, it, it was did a, the trick. It, it did the trick. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Literally, because it doesn't really fix anything. Yes. That's it literally exactly just does the trick, whatever <laughs> the doctors don't know, they don't just don't know what they're doing. So like, just take this because then it will regulate things and, and suppress the, the pain and the symptoms. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's so hard when you're young like that and suffering. You don't want to be just like surviving through those years. You want to have like some quality of life. And if if that sometimes, you know, it's the same with, with medicine too, right? I'm so um, like in my life, try not to take anything. Mm -hmm. and but then just sometimes you have to there's a there's a time and place yeah it drives my husband crazy he's like just take a Tylenol and stop complaining <laughs> I know I know and and I feel like I'm the opposite now I feel like I rely so much on pain medications mm. that I don't think twice about it because it's really the only way I can get through my job and yeah. life and you know kind of doing my day-to-day and then when I have those moments where I have no responsibility at the end of the day, let's say that's when I'm kind of like, okay, I'm not going to take any pain meds. I'll just suffer through it, you know? So see, yeah, yeah. We, all, we all kind of find our, our rhythm with. Yes. Pain. And the balance, yes. equilibrium of everything. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, that beginning part. Cause I think it's, it's very interesting for people to hear how things started and how you felt and, and all that and the cycles, because everyone's just so different, right? Some yep. people go on birth control, some people don't. And mm -hmm. yeah. So then, um, so between those two times, you felt like, so you were on birth, birth control half your life, basically, yep. Yep. by then. 
um, just stopped in order to try and conceive. And then you end up at the doctor and then the surgery. So um, can you share with us then? So he's, he gave you the three months mm -hmm. and, and you shared that you were feeling like excited and positive. So how was that time like? So of course, because I'm a glutton for punishment, of course, I <laughs> decided that that was the end of the road for my husband and I. So a lot of other stuff had led to that conclusion. It was not um, based on the fertility issues at all, in fact. Um, and I knew sort of leading up to the date of the surgery that we probably had run our course with trying to conceive, but I needed that three months of what they would say as pain-free Mm -hmm. for me I needed that yeah. and and it was it was it was astonishing to me to realize what the majority of people who menstruate actually feel like on their period I you know they joke that they don't even know that they're on it and oh maybe a little God. headache and <laughs> I thought it was all a joke until those months. <laughs> and, and it was blissful and and you know I can't say that it was a hundred percent pain-free, but it was magnitudes different from what I had experienced for those 15 years before. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just know, you know, after those three months that things are starting to go back to what I would call normal. And it was a reality. I mean, I think they had primed me so much mm -hmm. about that three month window that I knew I, and I, yes, I was disappointed, but I had primed myself for it. I had prepped mentally that, okay, that's going to come back. So this is what it is. Yes. And then, and then how did it carry on? Also, I wanted to ask before that, actually, um, at this point, were you already doing research and getting to know a little bit more about endo or was, were you just like focused on the treatment that the doctor was giving you and the timeline? And of course your um, marriage and relationship was changing at that point. Mm -hmm. So how did it, when did you start exactly mm -hmm. going in, diving into that? So not right away. I I think the three month buffer that they gave me was also sort of a three month of me blindfolding myself and just saying, okay, live your life and don't focus on endo. And then things got back to my baseline after that. So it's not a good normal, but it's my normal. Mm -hmm. And I was living my life as I had 15 years prior. Um, I had gone back on the birth control pill. So my cycles were regulated again. We were reducing the amount of pain, the amount of bleeding. And then I guess my normal became worse. Mm. And, and it, it did take a while. I wouldn't say that it happened right away. Probably about a year or two after that surgery is when I started feeling my body changing and feeling pain in areas that I hadn't experienced before. So leading up to that first surgery, it was largely pelvic pain. Um, I think part of me knew that my uh, digestive issues were endo related as well. 
And so it was all kind of like lower level, right? How abdominal. But then as time went on, I started feeling pain thoracically. So near my lungs, near my diaphragm. Um, So that's when I started doing the research. That's when I was like, okay, there's more to this than the doctors are leading on. Mm-hmm. And they're not giving me more solutions other than the birth control pill. So I had to start doing my own research. And the first thing that I did once I had read more about the disease is I took out dairy. Okay. And eventually I took out gluten because I knew those two things always impacted the way I felt. And so that was my first line of defense for reducing the inflammation in my body Um, and then just trying to stay active, which to me now seems so funny because there got to be a point where I couldn't be active anymore. So Mm -hmm. knowing that there were days where I could go out for a run every day and enjoy everything that life had to offer at a point in time, you know, those were, those were some pretty good days to be honest yes Yes, I can imagine because as it progresses it can I I have no idea how that feels my pain is not to that degree mind you I've shared this on other episodes talking to other um, guests too that I'm not diagnosed with endo but I I have a very strong feeling that that's um that's what's happening Mm -hmm. so we'll see once I yeah, once things change in our family yeah. and then how things progress or regress, hopefully regress, but you never you never know. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to share, so important to share that endo is not just pelvic pain. It's yes. not just during your period. Um, so because it's already wrong to, you know, sort of dismiss period pain as just a normal thing oh you're bleeding and you know you're shedding and whatever and it's normal to feel pain and then it's just a few days anyways right I'm sure that's you know it's what people think um and you know just you get over it the majority of the days you're fine but then it's it's not the reality really of what endometriosis is so even I, I had no clue that you could have endo in various different places. So our common friend, um, Juliana, that was a previous guest, yeah. she, yeah, she explained very well too. So like you're saying how it can be so intrinsic in your bowels and mm-hmm. so connected to digestive issues. You can be misdiagnosed, right, with digestive issues as well. Um yeah. Can you share a bit about, so the diet and um, how, from your research, how does that help? Because it seems like it is fairly helpful. Yeah. I mean, I would preface anything with diet that it's a person to person Mm -hmm. thing, right? So I would never equate this as a solution for everybody. Yeah. Um, And I know too much about gut, gut health to understand that certain things won't affect a person at all. Yeah. And then others will completely be inflamed after eating something that doesn't sit well with them. And so ultimately what I had learned was that when you have a disease like endometriosis, or if you have other diseases uh, that are coexisting with it, that have a a big inflammatory base to it, Mm -hmm. anything that the 
body doesn't really like as a, a component that it's supposed to digest, the body will react to it with more inflammation as it tries to move it through your body. And so there's there's what we call endobelly for patients mm-hmm. with endometriosis where they'll get you know a very distended belly. They look like they're in their second trimester and uh, it's very transient. So it can be related to environmental factors, but a big component of it is uh, digestive. So if, for instance, you normally don't eat dairy and then you have a big brick of cheese, you'll find that your, your belly is inflamed because that's your body's way of, of dealing with it. So there were a number of things. Um, if you do the research for an endo diet, they call it, and they do suggest that you remove red meat, um, dairy, gluten. Now, red meat never affected me. So even when I do eat it, I seem to be tolerant. But the dairy I knew affected me and the gluten I knew affected me. So that helped. The occurrence of endobelly really, really went down. And so I was happy about that because that plays a mental factor too, right? When you feel bloated and uncomfortable and yes, totally. Yeah. yeah. Constipated yes. and that just yeah. affects the mood so much as yeah. well. Your self-confidence, obviously, All if you're putting it. weight and you have a belly and um, also, yeah, it's, it's a trial and error thing, right? Yes. With with that. Yeah. And I find also the control. So all of these things like endometriosis, um, a journey and struggles I find are so um, similar, even if you're not trying to conceive so similar to the infertility journey. And of course, they are very correlated because endo will cause infertility. But even if you're just on one journey or the other, Um, It's the lack of control that we have and the feeling that, you know, we're broken and, you know, we could, our bodies don't function the way they should be. And if you can find at least one thing, right, that you can control, you can control not eating gluten and not eating dairy. Maybe it's not like the best thing and it's not something that will bring you joy. (laughs) Maybe, you know, not eat if you like bread or pasta, you know, gluten free stuff is just not the same. But I feel the same with me, too. Like when I started um, changing my diet and just feeling a little bit better. Um, I feel like, okay, at least it's something that I can control because I can't control the amount of um, pain I'm going to get every other month or whatever. I can't control if I'm going to conceive or not. I can control the quality of my eggs, the quality of my partner's sperm. So, you know, at least something and, and that you can find, hopefully. I'm sure there are people out there too that try a lot of diet stuff and it still doesn't, um, doesn't work that well. And, and that's where I wanted to go next is medication. So you did say, you know, it gets to a point where medication is just like a part of your routine Mm -hmm. and it's like taking candy, right? So how was that um, for you as things started to progress and you were already like your stage three, and then you started getting the thoracic um, pain? How did it go from there? Ah, so After I had the thoracic, um, I had actually moved. I had been hopping around. So I'd gone to LA. Everything was fine. I moved up to Vancouver and call it right place at the right time. But 
Vancouver has an excellent multidisciplinary uh, center of excellence for endometriosis. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, they they are phenomenal. And that's something that we're really trying to push here in Ottawa um, because what it allows you to do is view endometriosis as one aspect of your health. And so if there are confounding issues like digestive issues or, um, you know, let's say you do have breathing issues, they've got respirologists there. So I had gone to a walk-in clinic and I had pleaded with the doctor there to get me a referral into that clinic because I knew that ultimately with how much this disease had progressed inside my own body, I needed to be under the care of, of someone who really knew how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And so I had uh, gotten in after a few months to go see one of the specialists there. And um, the route that they took wasn't necessarily pain medications. It was variations of hormonal therapy. And this is what I like to call the latter approach because, you know, none of these things will cure endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And it's like a patient needs to fight for their right to get surgery. And of course, the idea of having a second surgery wasn't great, but I knew with everything that I had read up until that point, that the excision surgery was what I needed. Mm-hmm. And here I was in the care of one of the best surgeons in the country. But the latter approach basically states that, you know, there's a number of medications we need to try first. Um, one angle of it is that, okay, maybe you'll find reprieve with one of these. So surgery may not be needed. Alternatively, one could view it as buying yourself some time or buying them some time until they can get you in. So I've done the whole laundry list. I've done progestin only. Um, I've done the Marina IUD, Um, not with that surgeon, but the the surgeon that I see now in Ottawa. I also did Oralissa, which is a a hormone blocker. and they don't work. I mean, I think some people do find some reprieve for mm-hmm. a certain amount of time and then ultimately it stops working or yeah. the disease progresses enough that the, the pain comes back or at a, or a larger state that those meds just don't have a chance, right? Yeah. And do you, and hormonal therapy is so tricky and, and slightly dangerous, really. Yes. Because every... Every body is different. The doctors obviously don't know how you're going to react to those um, hormones mm-hmm. that are not made by your body. Right. And then, and and it's so common. I don't know how it was for you, but so common that they just start piling up, right? So that initial dose didn't work. So let's try more and more. And these are so dangerous for our health and they... Yeah, suppressing hormones can lead to all sorts of cancers and like... Right, it's proven, and and they're still doing they're still doing these um, approaches, eh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know that there are a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, these doctors are doing it because they're in cahoots with pharma and whatnot." Mm. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I just think that doctors are are given a toolbox of tools, and they want to exceed those tools for every patient. Before doing a surgery, 
I see both sides of the coin, right? So I, um, I fumble a little bit with where I sit. Mm-hmm. I do know that surgery is the gold standard. And ultimately, if a patient wants surgery, they should be able to have surgery. However, after enduring now three surgeries, every time they cut into you, it has an impact, right? Your body is never the same afterwards. So I even made the decision. I know we're, we're bouncing around, but I had had my second surgery in Vancouver and then things started coming back again and I was getting pain because of adhesions so I had my my most recent surgery in October and I'm not I'm not the same you know and and I tried to buy myself sometimes this was not on my doctor I tried to buy myself sometime between the the second and third surgery because I just didn't want to be cut open again yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Are these surgeries um, laparoscopic, though? They are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's so much that's happening inside the body. It's oh crazy. yeah, so yeah. much. And the the one that I had in Vancouver was fairly straightforward in that you know they use the three incisions, they go in, they remove what they can, uh, and she was able to. She didn't excise the lesions on my diaphragm but she ablated them okay and you know thankfully after however many years it's been now three years they didn't grow back or they didn't spread or or any good those things um but with this last surgery there were six holes because they didn't know if the thoracic pain that I was experiencing was because of endometriosis and so they had prepped themselves that it may be a fairly extensive abdominal and thoracic surgery. So there's a lot of healing that goes with that type of surgery. Absolutely. So the first surgery that you did in Vancouver was your second one. That right. was a combo. So she did some ex- uh, excision. Yes. How you say it? Yeah. And some <laughs> ablation. Yes. Okay. And then the third one, how was, so how did it turn out from their expectations? So it was all excision, which was great. And unlike the Vancouver surgery, uh, we, so my endometriosis specialist, who was my surgeon, he brought in a thoracic surgeon as well. So not knowing what we would find, what type of resection we would need to be doing, what kind of damage there'd be a thoracic surgeon needed to be in the room just in case, because of course, endometriosis specialists don't know every part of the body. And so there was some scheduling difficulties as well, right? Having both those surgeons available for, for such an extensive surgery. Um, So they did see that my left ovary and my bowel were fused to my abdominal wall by adhesions. Okay. Um, My right ovary had some suspect tissue, which was endometriosis. And then there were some abnormal tissues on my diaphragm that they biopsied. Thankfully, it came back as not being endometriosis, but pathology is only so correct. So the good news is that yeah. they took it out. Whatever looked weird, they took it out. And 
it's kind of like whatever happens, happens at this point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good. It was a six hour surgery. They removed a lot of adhesions. They corrected everything, check out anything that looked weird. Um, And thankfully I didn't have any um, appendix issues. I didn't have any endometriomas, which are blood filled cysts. Um, So overall it was like the happy medium, you know, they, they got in, they did what they needed to do, but I didn't wake up with any like nasty surprises. Okay. Yeah. Which is always good when you're waking up from a surgery. Yes. (laughs) So how you did say mention um, that the recovery is really tough. So, yeah. So how did, if you can describe a little bit for listeners that are going through this now, or maybe have surgeries booked, like what can they expect? And what were things that you went through? Maybe you didn't know that you could share. So people are aware. And what did you do about it? Yeah. So I think because I had had the two surgeries prior, I knew that the pelvic area was going to be sore. So it's not unlike the extreme pelvic pain that you get with your periods, but it's very uh, constant. And in addition to the oxygen that they put in your body to um, blow everything up and it, so to speak, right? So they have to be able to visualize your organs. So they, they balloon you and that is painful. Um, so with the work that they do in the pelvic area, in addition to the bloating that you have, the female body is very good at holding pain in the pelvic area. So I would just say it's tolerable and you will need pain medications, but mm-hmm. You just know innately how to deal with pain there. I think what I was not aware of is when they work on the thoracic cavity, mm. that was very painful. I, I don't think I anticipated what that type of pain would feel like because you're not so much bloated up there, right? They bloat you more near your, your lower, lower abdominal and your pelvic mm-hmm. area. This is just them flipping your diaphragm and moving things around and getting their instruments in there. Wow. They even found that the incisions up above took longer to heal. Interesting. Yeah. So that I wasn't prepared for. I think when, when the thoracic cavity is involved, there's a whole new level of pain that you need to wrap your head around and you have to practice breathing again because you ultimately hold everything in with the fear that you're going to shatter something or pull something, right? And you, you naturally use your, your core strength for everything that you do. So I would just encourage anyone who does have thoracic involvement to just keep breathing, like big breaths. And it sounds so juvenile, but that will help reduce the tension. Mm -hmm. It will help reduce the adhesions that might form. Um, I would even say that it would expedite your healing just because you're allowing everything to move freely. And oxygenate too, because you need oxygen for your tissues to heal. 
Yeah. 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 And if you're breathing really shallow or you're scared, so there's the fear attachment or attached to the breathing, it won't, it wouldn't be as, yeah, maybe even going as far as doing breathing exercises before. So you create that muscle memory, right? So then afterwards you can just sort of go into a state where you can just tap into it versus trying to pull it from a new sort of skill, right? Yeah. yeah, that's a very, that's a very good point. Yeah, it's interesting, just different parts of the body will heal differently and affect us even emotionally differently as well. Yeah, so thanks for thanks for sharing that. Of course. Yeah, it's intense. And then um, how so after the recovery and all that, how are you feeling now? Good, really yes. good. So I was honest, right from the get go with my surgeon, that within 24 hours, I felt a massive difference. So what I had thought was diaphragm endo was actually, and this is completely my theory because no one's connecting (laughs) for me, but I think what had happened was when my bowel and my ovary became attached to the abdominal wall, it pulled on the muscles on my left side. And so as I was trying to do anything physical or just breathe or sleep on my left side, my brain immediately went to, oh goodness, this is endometriosis on my diaphragm again. And it felt very similar, but knowing now that it wasn't that, I think the main contributor was the adhesions. Um, And so when that was removed, I felt like my body could breathe properly again and and move. My bowels were free to move. Mm -hmm. I did have some bowel complications uh, after the surgery, not in any bad way, but just in in the sense that my, my bowels had been stuck for so long that when that elasticity came back and it was allowed to sit in a completely different position again, um, it was difficult to have bowel movements because my body was rearranged. Yes. Confused probably <laughs> yeah, too. Confused <laughs> and, and just, you know, trying to reestablish a new normal again, mm-hmm. but the surgery was very successful. Like I, right now, knock on yeah. wood, I don't have endometriosis pain. Oh, that's so, so amazing. Yes. And yeah. medication, you're medication free. Yes. So I'm back on the birth control pill uh, because I, after a few months, I started feeling um, pelvic pain again. And, and, you know, this is, this is where I believe some people are inherently going to have pelvic pain with their Mm -hmm. menstrual cycles with endometriosis there or not there. It's what we call primary dysmenorrhea. So in the absence of a a physical disease. And so in order to overcome that challenge, which is something I really didn't want to have, especially while I was still recovering from surgery, um, the birth control is now being used to eradicate my cycle altogether. So I take them continuously and there's still some hormonal movement um, from time to time, I can I can feel crashes very similar to PMS. Mm. But I've just been told that the longer I do this, 
the hormones will regulate themselves. Okay, interesting. I think that's a good segue for um, the topic of infertility. And, you know, the, the wanting to be a mother versus um, feeling like you're supposed to be a mother and how did, cause I know that you've shared with me before, um, how that changed and you shared it on your platform as well, that we're going to talk about, um, also your two different platforms. And so can you share a bit about how that change and your decisions to carry on with your, um, on your life in a different way now? That's interesting. I mean, I think, I think despite the pain, some people still long to have that child and, and maybe there's hope provided to them. Maybe, you know, they get constant encouragement that, that it's still possible with me when I did go through my divorce and I learned to live on my own and I had years of dealing with pain while living on my own. I think that that was a big factor for me. I understood how much of a toll endometriosis would have on my body. And all I could think about was, do I want to go through fertility drugs? Do I want to do IVF? Do I want to put all of this on my body in addition to the disease? Could I emotionally handle not being able to conceive again? and again, and again. And so I think finding a comfortable place of self-care for me meant that I was going to close that chapter in my life and proceed living the best life that I could, um, ultimately finding a man who was everything that I had dreamt of and he too had no desire to have children. And I've admitted this to certain people. I think when he said he would be okay not having kids, in fact, he'd prefer it because he does have two grown kids from his previous marriage. That was a huge weight lifted off of him. And, and I don't, I, you know, I hope saying that out loud resonates with people because there's always that, okay, I need to keep trying. I need to keep trying. Yeah. And then when you allow yourself to just live and close that chapter, it's, uh, it's freeing. It is freeing. And, and there will always be people in your life who will keep knocking on that door. You know, when yeah. are you again, you should adopt, you should do IVF, you should do this. But if you remind yourself that this is for you, Yes. It's not your me. life to right? live. Yeah. yeah. Not anyone else's. Yeah. Not it anyone. sounds, it sounds like you found liberation in that part of your life. So I'm really happy that you did. Mm-hmm. Cause it's, yeah, it's not a good place to be, to feel like you're um, forced into a box and yep. yeah. So, so that's cool. Let's, let's, um, go into your platform. So um, you're very active on Instagram. So if you don't mind like sharing your handle and a little bit about what you do with that account and what your goals are going forward, you can share as much as you want to. Also, we're in March now, so it's Ando Awareness Month and your your plans and everything that you're doing. I know you're busy now. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So um, so one thing we hadn't 
really touched on, which um, may be appealing to some people, is that before, literally before my second surgery, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And it having a very prominent inflammatory factor as well, uh, I was navigating these deep waters and didn't have much success in finding others that were having the challenge of dealing with both diseases. So I had started a blog, Cramp My Style blog, and that became um, just a place to jot down anything that I was feeling or what I had endured anytime I went to the hospital or tried new medications um, and have found a really great base of, of people who are either struggling with endo or with ulcerative colitis or both, which mm-hmm. you know, is great to not feel alone in that. Um And so shortly after starting the website or the blog, rather, I created Cramp My Style blog on Instagram and on Twitter, which is where I would say I do the majority of my outreach and advocacy work, just sharing everything and anything I know about endo uh, with the goal of, of course, reaching more and more people and educating and ultimately forming a community because I know that got me through a lot of the troubling times is having that community. And then in addition to that, um, I am starting a pain clinic called FemAid, and it's going to be here in Ottawa to start with. The idea is that it's not going to be a referral-based system. It's going to be one building housing a variety of different natural therapies and alternative therapies, um, never encouraging anyone to go off of their allopathic journey, which is with their, mm-hmm. with their doctors, but more looking at the root causes behind all of the symptoms that you're feeling, working with the medications that you're on, and just putting together a journey for each patient, client, however we deem them at that mm-hmm. point. Um, to just get some sort of better quality of life and reduce that pain. And it's going to be focused on the female made body. So ultimately with the disparity and understanding of the female reproductive and endocrine systems, we want to be able to um, foster the information that a lot of our specialists will have to look at pain in a way that's very direct for those systems versus the education that we have right now on the majority of male body systems and clinical trials that have included males. Um, so it's it's closing that that gender gap as well, and it's it's all inclusive, of course. But um, it gives these females a safe place, right? And so we're hoping to launch that. In the next year or two, fingers Yeah, come. that's a very, yeah, it's a big project. So mm-hmm. yeah, I wish you good luck. I wanted to know um, just a bit briefly, because yeah. we'll for sure bring you back when, when that's <laughs> up and running. We'll bring you back so you can share um, more about how it's working and hopefully it will spread, right? Yeah. To different cities, especially the big cities in Canada and all that. But what are some of the alternative modalities that you um, hope to have and maybe that you experienced already that have been um, a source of pain relief for you? 
That's a great question. So I think there will be different phases as we start to understand um, different modalities that have worked for individuals. At the beginning, I see absolutely osteopathic medicine, which has worked tremendously for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think massage therapy, pelvic floor therapy, physiotherapy, those are the core modalities that have worked very well for individuals uh, who have menstrual pain, invisible illness, chronic pain. And then as we get a better understanding, as we start expanding our services, I think that's where I would really like to see naturopaths and um, psychologists Mm. both under one roof as well, because that would really get to the more natural ways to, to deal with pain and um, what we don't, what we don't want to brush under the carpet is the fact that there is a psychological component to some of these diseases. So we're not saying it's all in your head, but we are saying that sometimes there's a, a brain gut connection or yeah. there's a brain pain connection. And so let's work that into the rest of the body as well and see how we can temper all of these systems to reduce the pain. Yeah, that's, yeah, that sounds amazing. It's, um, it, there's no one thing, right? No. It's always a combination, always, always a combination. That's right. Yeah, that's that's right. Awesome. And it'll be different for everybody. So yeah, exactly. We want to make sure that the very first thing we do with anyone who walks through that door is to talk about everything that they're feeling. And and you've never been able to do that with your doctor because you've got one specialty and 15 minutes to go over I know. what's been wearing you down, right? Yeah, I know. The, the public health system is amazing in so many ways where it's, you know, everyone is receiving the care and it's free, um, pretty much uh, Canada and Mm -hmm. I'm sure different provinces are different, but it's amazing in that sense, but it has so many faults that the system, yeah, that we need to to sort of break down or break through, I guess. Um, I wanted to, yeah, so this is a perfect segue, the, our, our last little topic as we approach one hour, I'm keeping my eye on the clock so I don't take too much of your time too, but it's, um, it's so important, the advocacy. For, for um, female bodies, for reproductive system, for a uh, reproductive system, and for just like the approach that the doctors have in and their learning experience as well in school, mm-hmm. which apparently I have learned as well through listening to you and Juliana and all the other um, great people that are on this community that that share their stories and their experiences that the doctors just don't learn enough. Um, and, and then the specialists are usually, like you said, they're, they're just looking at the pelvic area Mm -hmm. and, and then they have to break, like, wouldn't it be much easier if it was one surgeon that you had to wait to book your surgery and not have to be like two specialists, right? And even for the system, let's, that's not cost effective, not time effective, right? So what are, what are things that you can point to that, that need to change? And also how do we go about these changes? Changes. Yeah. Uh, So the third 
advocacy group that I created with an, another editor, um, probably last year around this time, we we were talking to a surgeon here in the city who was getting fed up with the resources that physicians have in dealing with endometriosis and, and providing care to the patients at the level that they want to. And the solution seems to be perhaps not exactly what Vancouver has, but very, very similar is this multidisciplinary center of excellence, right? So you're not siloing your care. You're providing all the information to a group of physicians who all play a part in finding out, I don't want to say root cause because I don't think that the traditional healthcare system looks at root causes necessarily, but I do think that working together under one roof allows a patient to tackle problems head on versus let's say what I'm dealing with now where I have a bowel issue. Is it bowel due to endometriosis? Is it bowel issue due to colitis? Well, I can't get my gastroenterologist and my gynecologist to meet in one room. So it's on me to go back and forth. And that becomes tiring. It becomes draining mentally. That's where we need to improve. And mm-hmm. and I don't know if there are centers of excellences for other diseases, um, but that first and foremost needs to be the goal for patients for endometriosis. And then... I would also love to see doctors admitting when they don't know something. Mm. Oh, because, wouldn't that be great? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's such a, a, a hokey thing to say, but instead of saying, well, I don't believe that it could be this, which is a form of gaslighting. If a doctor could admit that they're not sure if a doctor could admit that you may be able to find reprieve through other types of medicine, if a doctor would admit that he could potentially get you to see a different type of doctor who may know more, that's where I think a patient would feel like there's hope. Yeah. Right. And, and it's called invisible illness for a reason. Doctors, would be experts in those invisible illnesses if they weren't invisible. Yes. So as a patient is navigating all of these symptoms and trying to piece together a journey and a story, doctors need to play a a more honest part in that. Yes. That's a great point. (laughs) Yes. I think a great point for us to wrap it up. Sounds good. <laughs> it's because uh, we could probably spend another hour just on that in the medical system yeah. and yeah, how tough it is. But you're doing uh, beautiful, amazing work. And um, I wanted to mention, I think I'm going to spring this um, on you because I don't think we talked about it. Do you have any um, book or mentor, anyone or a quote, something that has helped you through your struggles or that you would recommend to the listeners? Yes. Um, I need to get you the title of the book. Okay. Yeah. And we'll put it on the notes. Okay. Perfect. Um, so it's a woman's journey with invisible illness and her, 
her means of navigating the medical systems and everything she's endured, every roadblock that she's encountered with the doctors, uh, alternative therapies, all of that, it didn't provide me any more evidence uh, for my own journey, but it definitely gave me that confidence booster that, that there is something out there. And, and there's never a one size fits all, but if you keep pushing and you keep advocating for yourself that one day, you know, you will find some answers and the more people you talk to and the more doctors you see, and, you know, you're kind of chipping away, chipping away. And her sense of humor, this, this writer's sense of humor, just, it's very enlightening. I, I, I really, really loved it. Um, so I will get you the title of that book. Perfect. And, and, and then we'll share it. Yes. yes. Great. Thank you so much. We'll no, also add all of your, um, the blog address and all of the handles that you mentioned on the notes as well. And I guess my last question is when are you shipping those gluten-free brownies <laughs> to my house? <laughs> oh man. Oh, Anisha, your oh. food pictures, they look so good. When I cook or bake, I never bake. It never looks that good. <laughs> never. Oh goodness. Well, I mean, I, I'm practicing taking better pictures, so maybe I'm just teasing you here. Maybe. Um, but no, my husband has told me I am not allowed to bake for a while because we're both gaining on the, the <laughs> pandemic pounds. <laughs> It happens. It's good. It's That's all good. Beautiful. Me me and Juliana are going to make, a, we're going to do a road trip and come visit you when yes, things please. are good. Yes. yes <laughs> we'll give you the heads up and then you can prepare the brownies. Oh, I love it. Perfect. Anusha, such a pleasure to talk to you, truly. Thank you so much for your generous time. And I wish you good luck with everything that you're doing. And yeah, we'll keep in touch and keep on working together to bring information sessions like this to people. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that and learned a ton like I did. Please follow Anusha's handles, like I mentioned in the beginning. They're all on the notes of the episode. And to continue Ando Awareness Month, we have another amazing guest next week to talk about her journey as well. Alexandra is joining us. She is from Yellow Bows XO and Ando Canada on Instagram. So you can go ahead and find her there already. And we will share the conversation next Tuesday. Stay well, everyone, and we'll see you then. This podcast wouldn't be up and running if it wasn't for the help of a few very special people. You can find my special thanks to them all at myfertilityjourney.ca. And if you want to keep in touch, find me on Instagram on at myfertilityjourney.ca. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, leave a review to support the show and share it with anyone you think might benefit from it. Love you all and I'll see you soon.